Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Lord Jesus Christ, meet us here in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Show us who you are, and Lord, heal us of our sins. And today, Lord, let your word be preached with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness, that we might be with and become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Good morning, friends. Please take your seats. For those who do not know me, my name is Hunter Myers. I am the student minister here at the Cathedral Church, and it is a gift to be with you this World Mission Sunday. It was two in the morning. I was angsty and alone, but that was the moment God broke through my life in a new way. For months, I had been quietly losing faith in my people, in my community. I had chosen to go to a Bible college with two reputations. One was for its rich Christian community, and the second was for its way of equipping world missionaries. But two years in, I discovered the community standards rewarded self-righteousness more than they made us like Jesus. And what's worse, I grew worried that the gospel we proclaimed looked a lot more like American exceptionalism than Christ crucified. I have yet to meet a people group that needed to hear leadership lessons from the life of David. And like most 20-year-olds, I channeled my angst into late-night walks, quietly raging against the machine, and nobody took notice. But that night, on that walk, the Lord toppled my angst I made my way down to the prayer towers like a good Bible college student. And as I prayed and as I raged, the Lord brought a curious question to my mind. What does the gospel look like? What does the gospel look like? Jesus is so good at asking curious questions. He toppled people's lives with the most simple question like, what would you have me do for you? Who do you say that I am? Why do you worry so much about clothes? Why are you afraid? So when I found out I'd be preaching this World Mission Sunday, the Lord brought me back to that angsty night and the curious question, what does the gospel look like? Not just what is the gospel, but what does it look like? Those are connected. What does it look like for the gospel to break forth in our life, in the world, in your life? It's a great question to ask, to stay curious. For those who are wanting to grow in Christ or deeply doubting or even just exploring faith in Jesus, this question is pivotal to know what we are looking for, those of us who follow the way of the cross. So what does it look like? More often than not, it looks like a hot mess, especially at the beginning. From the moment the crucified and risen Christ commissions out his apostles, The New Testament documents just how messy it is when the gospel starts toppling people's lives. You could say that St. Paul was the preeminent missionary in the first century to new people groups and new places. And you could summarize most of his letters like so. You are in Christ. I love you. And please, for the love of all things holy, stop being so terrible to each other. He gets exasperated so easily. And for us today, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is a a fitting example of what the gospel looks like coming to a real messy church. 
So let's turn there together. I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning in the 10th verse. That's 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. We're starting around verse 10. You can find that on page 952 of your Black Pew Bible. So while you're turning to the passage, a little context on Corinth. Corinth was a revitalized Greek city in the Roman Empire. It had gone through a season of decline, but now new money, new opportunity, new peoples were flocking from its economic prospects. And in those ways, Corinth was a lot like Charleston. We discovered this similarly a few years ago in our preaching series through the book of 1 Corinthians. But as scholar Craig Keener notes, although theological errors were involved, a central issue was that people in Corinth were not getting along. Once we get past the cultural and language differences, the Corinthian Christians' values were very much like the values of most Christians today. Friends, as the, as the gospel of Jesus goes forth, syncretism, it's a big word, is a perennial problem. And so what is syncretism? Well, every culture has a heartbeat. Those values that get built into us, that animate us. It feels like from the inside out rather than from the outside in. For first century Jewish culture, they wanted miraculous signs to verify someone's message because their culture, their ideal was Moses, someone who had these miraculous signs demonstrating his role as a prophet. Greek culture desired eloquence and a well-reasoned argument to accompany a message. Their standard was Plato, Aristotle, all their great poets. In ancient Roman culture, their heartbeat, they valued dominance. A dominance that could assert its will so that law and order would reign over the chaos. For us Americans, we have to ask, what might be our heartbeat? There are lots of good answers out there. One I might propose is we love life up and to the right, the thriving life. Because yes, we like comfort. Yes, we like freedom. But what's better? More comfort, more freedom, more success, more influence. The heartbeat of our culture, goes deep into who we are. So much so that we tend to adapt and interpret the world only through the lens of our own culture. And so syncretism, going back to that big word, is what happens when we try to make Jesus follow our culture's script, our culture's rhythms, and our culture's values. So to this church, experiencing deep division as they follow the various heartbeats of their culture, St. Paul shows us how the good news of Jesus comes. It comes personally. It is shared corporately, and it connects us globally. So the gospel comes personally, is shared corporately, and it connects us globally. So turning to this letter, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there's quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is this. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that is Peter, or I follow Christ. Here Paul has a heart for unity for his people, not factionalism. But notice how Paul does name particular people who the Corinthian factions align with. Because the gospel comes through people, Paul acknowledges the danger of confusing the message or the messenger for the message. The danger, as Paul sees it, is that the Corinthian factions line up under whichever leader best fits their cultural heartbeats. Paul wasn't impressive to them. Apollos, to the Greek audience, he was eloquent. He fit their script. 
Peter, he had a bombastic personality. He fit the, the, the script for the Jewish believers. They each match up with what wisdom looked like to those cultures. And Paul will later conclude that, you know, who are, what is Paul? What is Apollos? They're servants through whom Christ came to you. But at the same time, the gospel only comes personally. It always comes through people. Paul acknowledges in, in Romans 10 as well. So both the beauty and the danger of the gospel coming through people are true for us here today. It's part of what the gospel looks like. People introduce you to Jesus, but it's easy to confuse the message for the messenger. So that way, when the messenger fails, it feels like it contradicts the message. And confusing the message with the messenger leads to division more often than not rather than unity. So what is the antidote? What does Paul offer instead? Well, as we continue reading in verse 17 and onward, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the discernment of the discerning. Now notice how Paul goes through and shows how the gospel topples everybody's cultural expectation. He asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jewish believers demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For Paul, the message of the cross, this gospel story has the power to save and unify people. But how does that work exactly? And why is it still so easy to fall into factionalism? A friend gave me this little mini table years ago. I keep it folded up in my briefcase for when meetings get tense and you need to flip a table to externalize your rage. But it's a little small for this big pulpit, so you're going to have to bear with me. All right. Imagine this table is the world. All that's in it. You, me, our cultures. Here's the world God created. But this is the world we live in. Because of sin, we live life upside down. We only know a world of brokenness. We're born into this world, and this is the world that our cultures have adapted to. We claim to be like, oh, I'm a left leg person. Oh, we're right leg people over here. We get creative in our adaptation. We string hammocks in between. We make the best of sin and brokenness. That's what we do. It's one of the most amazing things about people, and it's one of our greatest weaknesses. When we encounter another culture and their take on the world, it feels like a threat because we get so used to the camps we've abided in and we think, all right, not only is our culture's view of the world correct, it's the way the world should be. So we, when we encounter others who have different perspectives, different worldviews, different cultures, it comes across as a threat. Coercion and conflict are the tools of war and culture wars. And part of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians is that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are falling into the same pattern of the world. Factions, conflict, isolation. But friends, that's the 30,000 foot view. That's the big picture view. 
There's the lower to the ground view, or in my case, the five foot 11 and a half view. This is my life. This is the world I was born into. It's my, I trust that this is your life too. I was born upside down. No one ever had to tell me to hate someone else or to fear other people. I took to that very naturally. Yes, my culture shaped what kind of people I was more likely to fear than others, but I accepted that so readily it came naturally to me. The pride that turned the world upside down is at work in you, it's at work in me, it's at work in all of us, so that this is our life. And if we have a script, if what we think about the world makes sense, it usually looks like what I would want it to be. But friends, here's where God blows our minds. I would never have chosen the cross. That doesn't fit into my script. In one sense, it is unbelievably foolish. The cross doesn't make sense in life upside down. A crucified Messiah offended the Jews. A crucified God baffled the Greeks. A cross would never have been Caesar's throne. But for us, who are sick of living life upside down, who are sick of the fighting, sick of the factionalism, sick of that disease within us, that sin that keeps us from living fully into life, to finding joy, the cross is good news. Because Jesus came, God the Son came down, became like us in order to do this, to flip everything right side up again. When we see Jesus turning over people's worldviews, what he's actually doing is turning the world right side up again for them and for us. This is the gospel, friends. That God made the world good, but because of our sin, everyone suffers and everyone dies and is born spiritually dead and separated from that God. But when Jesus, God's son, came from heaven, took on our nature to become like us, he lived perfectly. And by his cross, he healed death, just as he healed those whom he touched. The love and power of God is so audacious, so audacious that it touches the sin and the shame and the guilt and the powers that separate us from God. And it worked. Jesus' death did it. It turned the table right side up again. And the resurrection is the proof that that has won, that God's life has won. Or as Paul says, for as in Adam all die, we're all born upside down. So in Christ shall all be made alive. And friends, the cross has to do that work. It has to topple each of us. That's what the healing of God looks like. I'm gonna put the table down now, okay? All right. That's what the healing of God looks like. There's no coming to Jesus without every part of your life in some way getting turned around, turned right side up again. Repentance involves that kind of upheaval, that kind of suffering, that kind of unlearning and relearning. But for anyone, anyone who would follow our crucified king, this toppling, this turning the world right side up again makes us one. That's what it means for the gospel to be shared corporately. The gospel is not competitive like our cultures can be. Paul puts it this way as he talks about the source of their unity. He, he says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, the cross topples everything. 
Christ takes our cultural expectations and scripts and turns them on their heads. Your success and your status aren't what matter in God's kingdom. What matters is following the crucified king. And it's at that moment when the wisdom of God shines forth in the midst of the upheaval, in the midst of the repentance, in the midst of that toppling, that God turns those tables right side up again to do what tables do best, to be the place for fellowship and joy. One day after a long journey, Jesus was exhausted. So he let his disciples go into town while he stayed at a well to catch his breath. And while he was there, it was the middle of the day, it was very hot, this Samaritan woman came to draw water and he asked her, would you draw me some too? Another curious question. But she was taken aback that a Jewish man would speak to her, a Samaritan woman. But Jesus said that he had living water for her actually, water that would satisfy her. And she was confused because she didn't see him holding a bucket. She knew that her ancestor Jacob drew water from that well, what, what is this guy going to draw well, water from that well with? But Jesus said that the water he has for her would forever qu- uh, quench her thirst and well up into eternal life. And Jesus proved that he knew her personally. He said, I know the man you're, not, you're living with right now is not your husband, and that you've had five husbands. And so the woman perceives that this man is a prophet, that Jesus must be a prophet. So she brought up the key disagreement between Jews and Samaritans about where to worship God. And Jesus, in that moment, reveals that what God is looking for, the new kingdom that God is inaugurating in the world, in him, is not about where you worship God, but worshiping the Father in spirit and truth from anywhere. And this woman knew that only the Messiah, only God's promised king, only the one who would actually bring about that kind of world can make that kind of claim. And he said, that's who he is. That's what he has come to do. And she leaves her bucket. She runs, proclaiming to all the people in the town, well, here, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. He might be the Christ. So let's, let's reverse for a second. Let's take a little snapshot. Think about what Jesus did in that interaction. Jesus toppled every part of her life, friends. He reached across the ethnic lines dividing their people. He promised something greater than her ancestors ever could. He met her in a practical need, but pointed her to her deep spiritual need. He invited her into God's kingdom, not because of where she grew up, but because of who he is and what he was going to do. And notice her response. Joy. Joy of being fully known and fully loved. Someone knew her story and loved her anyways. Y'all, she was there in the middle of the day for a reason. She had a reputation. So when she went back in the town, we can only imagine all her friends saying, girl, we all know everything you've ever done. But then they met Jesus and they saw that the way she was transformed by being fully known and fully loved was unmissable in this woman. And then they saw it for themselves when they invited Jesus to stay with them to eat at their tables. After two days, they concluded he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. Friends, that joy is the opposite of the boasting that led us into all this mess anyways. We're born in pride, but that joy that comes from being toppled, from our life being turned right side up again in Jesus, is, it's, it's incredible. 
It's better than anything our cultures or our world has to offer. That's why Paul concludes, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He did something we could never do, but he invites us to receive all the benefits all the same. And so to the polarized church at Corinth, Paul points them to the joy of the gospel. So yes, the cross topples them. It turns everything upside down. But like the Samaritan woman, that's how God heals us. That's how God invites us into his joy and his fellowship. Y'all, I needed Jesus to topple my self-righteous indignation that night at the prayer towers. How ridiculous is it? How cringy is it for a 20-year-old to hold the moral high ground on a bunch of missionaries? That's terrifying. Ridiculous. But Jesus invited me deeper into his kingdom in that moment. He showed me what the gospel looks like. It looks like a joyful toppling that everything gets turned upside down, but guess what? It's better. It is. He is better. The messengers who bring the good news of the, get toppled for the joy of their recipients finding Jesus in their words. The cultures who receive the gospel get toppled for the joy of finding that the world, which was upside down, is now right side up. Every person who follows our crucified king finds joy inexpressible, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of disappointment, even in the midst of persecution. There is joy. The joy of the gospel is that we get to be with Jesus the Jesus who flips our tables and invites us to his banquet, his table. So friends, I wonder for you today, how is God inviting you into that joyful toppling? And if I could give you a, a question to ask, it's usually where you're not experiencing deep joy. More often than not, it's those things, those patterns in my life, those relationships I'm not willing to follow, those things that I, I don't think God can actually heal, or if he knew about it, it'd be a problem to keep me from the joy of the gospel. I wonder if I might be the same for you too. But one way I commend all of us to embody this good news of the gospel and what the gospel looks like is by eating meals together, going to tables together, especially with your neighbors and those who are not like you. If you ask any cross-cultural missionary, the table is a key space where the gospel takes root in people's lives. Tables are where cultures express their values. For example, in Croatia and Serbia, you always eat with one arm on the table to show you're not like reaching for something else, like a weapon or something like that. So when my uh, Croatian friend was in town and he had both his elbows on the table, I was like, well, that's new. But he taught me something else in the process. Tables are where we express our values, where cultures express our values. And so when we come to the table with others, we're inviting them to teach us something new. But this isn't just pragmatic advice. The whole narrative of Holy Scripture, the whole gospel story concludes with a wedding banquet. The book of Revelation gives us a joyful image of a multi-ethnic feast when Christ's terms comes back to finish his toppling. Y'all, the gospel ends with a potluck. It does. All nations bringing their best. The things that have gotten toppled are actually even better than they were before. Everybody gets to come to the table and it's as if our Lord Jesus Christ says himself, you're invited, come. You who have followed me, come to my table, receive my rest. Come into my fellowship with my Father and the Spirit. Come and rest. The table is set. Friends, Christ calls his church to disciple all nations for the joy set before us at his table. 
The gospel looks like every person and every culture bringing its best to Christ and his table. God calls us his church to go to the nations, not just because the nations need the gospel, but because we need the gospel too. And there are things we can only learn about Christ because of them and through them. We need our global neighbors to show us more of who Christ is. Friends, world mission is how Christ is setting his table for all nations now and in the age to come. So today, let's receive that joyful toppling and let's come to his table that he sets for us today. Amen.